show a plug our sponsor facefacegames.com the number one place to get your magic of the gathering singles this week 15 percent off all high-end scan cards so if you're a baller or if you've been playing some eternal formats you might want to check out uh, everything uh, between there's a lot of collector's edition stuff on sale as well that we have in stock so go to facefacegames.com right now or go check i don't know if we have stoneforge mystics anymore but uh here back on the show actually no not back on the show it's going to be new regular monthly guests shaheen sarani is going to be joining us uh, is, is joining us uh, for this episode along with uh, las vegas magic fest las vegas participants jonathan zhang and elliot portier talking about their adventures but we've got to get the man how's it going shaheen it's going all right bud i like that title monthly guests it's a lot better than whatever it was before it was like all, <laughs> it was like greatest most most highest returning uh guest ever um so let, let's get we didn't have you on when they first announced the the rivals league and all the additional stuff like the uh, the new tour that they, they have the new players tour wanted to get your thoughts on it on the show i talked about how you know some people viewed the rivals potentially as a replacement for just platinum so it doesn't fill that goal that gold fix for you is that true what was your reaction to the, all, all of that no I, I disagree i think it's um it's kind of like a mix between gold and platinum um it's it's not the point of gold platinum or silver whatever it just had to had we needed something to fill the void of having the ability to rack up points on near misses to achieve some type of continuity in um at the professional level so like I read the details of that and I wasn't satisfied, so I started to tweet storm against or with uh, Wizards and East Magic Esports, and they were pretty responsive to everybody. But to me, they said some real, real spicy nuggets my way. Sent them my way. They said, you know, we know that near misses at Grand Prix need to be a, a way of qualification. So they just them telling me that that's going to be the future is a gold equivalent to me. Um, and I even asked that my, my tweet exactly was, I should pull it up, but I, I do was, you know, near, uh, consistent finishes in Grand Prix or consistent finishes at high level tournaments need to be a qualification path. And they said it will be. So if they're going to do near misses at Grand Prix and then rack up a point system for that, or some type of, uh, you know, system with that, that is gold because you can achieve pro status without playing in, um, the players tour playing in, um, you know, whatever the equivalent is mythic championship. So I'm, I'm happy with the announcement. I mean, it, it could have been nothing was what a lot of us were expecting. Uh, could have been, it sounded like I, I, you know, and I hate to say it, but it, without feedback, without pressure for the last year from a lot of people, I mean, I'm just one out of the, out of the thousands that pressured them, um, that they were quite happy with having 200 person pro tours, um, and having it just qualify the only way you qualify through being in the MPL or qualify by winning a PTQ exactly or winning top eight Grand Prix exactly. And it sounds like, um, you know, they, they really took into consideration a lot of our issues and with that and uh, made some changes. So uh, I'm still waiting on the details, but as right now, this moment, you know, August 27th, I'm pretty happy about, their responsiveness in that last uh, um, you know, barrage of tweets and also um, the the skeleton framework they provide us. So are, are you going to be back 
on the grind per se? Have your plans changed based on this news? No, um, I, I still, I really want to pursue Star City. I think that uh, being on the East Coast and not taking advantage of that is kind of foolish, mainly because I've never been an A and you know A listed A list player. I've always considered myself in kind of like the B minus pro squad. Um, not really even a dig on myself, just the amount of time I, I'm willing to put in the game. But even as a B minus player, I was able to do some pretty good things on the uh, the tour. So I, I enjoyed the success um, there. Really it was a nice little money boost. It helped me help promote me to a, a spot with content creation that I'm pretty happy about. Um, so like I, I do want to give that a whirl. So I mean, I'm still going to play Wizards events. Before I was going to play zero, but now I'll play local ones. I'll go to local Grand Prix I can drive to. I'll, I'll see how it goes. And if I accidentally trip into a you know, Grand Prix first place and I find myself in the thick of things for qualifying for whatever the gold equivalency is, if when, they, when they announce actually the full details instead of this skeletal framework, then, um, then I obviously will do a hard switch. But at this point, um, the, the lucrative calling of the tour is there. And um, as you know, you have a lot of Canadian brethren that have already crossed the border to try to dominate the tour because of that same aspect. I think that playing in a tournament series that you're more capable of dominating or at least performing high level in is um, another side dream to the pro alternative when the pro alternative is not very good. So both. That's my answer. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's jump to one of the spiciest news this past uh, Monday. We we knew it was coming. We knew something was going to happen. And... uh, it seemed like one one of your predictions, one of your uh, predictions came true, Gene. So, uh, what are your feelings when you read the news on Monday? Well, let's. I have to set the record straight. Actually, all my predictions came true. Um, so let's let's get that you know, nipped in the butt there. So, I predicted Faithful Saluting getting banned, Hogat getting banned, and Stoneforge Missing being unbanned. I actually wrote an article before Bridge from Below was banned, saying that Faithful Saluting, Hogak, and Stoneforge would be unbanned. That was my three for that as well. Um, but I helped, even after they banned Bridge from Below, my next article was, you know, this is not going to be enough. These decks are dumb. And, um, you know, it finally came around to it. I think, obviously, if you're coming from a financial point of view, they don't want to ban a card in the set they just released. I mean, it's just bad. It's fiscally irresponsible for them. So, I mean, they obviously just hoped it would go away, and it didn't. Um, but the Stoneforge Mystic unbanned, obviously, when I read that, it was just doing a social media victory lap all day and wasn't getting any work done at work. And I was just tweeting at people and people were obviously like interacting with me. It was really fun. Aaron Forsythe got into the game a little bit. He, he tweeted at me a little bit because I was talking about JIT being the next mission. And then he's like tweeted a, a meme of like me getting dragged off stage, like for my love Lucy back in the day. So obviously it's, it's all in good fun. It was really like a super great announcement. I mean, it, it's the exact formula that needed to be kicked in to do to modern what old extended had going for it. And for those watching and aren't really weren't competitive back when extended was around that the games just went longer and it's because the format obviously rotated and the cards were weaker, but if you're going to have a non-rotating format that you want to be longer games and legacy and more interactive, you got to faithful saluting is a huge barrier for that. And I wrote extensively about how it, removes play design uh, wiggle room 
and future sets and cards have to fall into this will faithless looting break it mentality. So I knew faithless looting had to go at some point, and they're just kicking the can down the road um, because you just can't print good graveyard cards ever with faithless looting around. It just promotes free aggressive creatures. So there's no reason ever to cast a you know a Thalia or a Monster and Mentor. You can always play those in these tier two decks. There's no reason to play creature decks when you put them all into play for free after one or two uh, cantrip style effects. So um, the announcements are great. Every last one was amazing. Um, uh, Hogak had to go. Faithful Suiting for Future Health of Modern had to go. And Stoneforge Mystic, one of the most fair cards that Modern could actually have, um, should have been unbanned ages ago. And um, it's just a, it was asinine. It was banned this long. And somebody... Doug at Aaron, I don't know if you saw Forsyth's initial tweet where he said people love to say, oh, this tweet didn't age well, and he retweeted it, what he was getting ragged on for, and it was the debate him and I were having, I'm the next comment under his tweet, like one under, and uh, it's when he said Blue White's winning everything, they don't need Stoneforge Mystic, it has all these top eights, and I came back and said, it has like five top eights in five years. (laughs) 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 And it all happened at one time. I'm like the deck has been getting mauled since 2011. Are you kidding me? And like I'm like, and I kept accusing him of like cherry picking stats and all this. But you know he's, they work with the best information they have, and I know his mission of modern is not the same as mine. I want control to be playable as a sidebar, but him and I come together when it's about format health because when the format is 30 different aggro decks and combo decks then control can never be good. And he doesn't want that either. Nobody wants that. So when that is fixed, we actually all win. So um, it was just great. Announcement was great. So I'm going to go straight to John here, who uh, once he read the announcement, he he told me this is one of the most frustrating news he's ever received. So I got to hear it from the other side. Uh, Take it away, John. Well, Neoform's busted now. What are you talking about? I don't know about that, Shaheen. I feel a bit uh, dazed and confused. But anyways, um, Hogak ban, I think it's completely, you know, everyone expected it. I, I do have um, some issues with the other two bans. Um, I, I might, like history may look back and say my reasonings are wrong, but here are my feelings, so I guess. Um, Faithless Bleeding, I think, <clears throat> I don't think it's done anything wrong. People can argue with me. I think it creates for pretty interesting, like, uh, deck design, uh, deck designing. Um, if you look at the uh, type of cards, that type of decks that uh, Faithless Looting has spawned, like Red Phoenix, Is It Phoenix, Marty Paramancer, Hollow One, Dredge, I think those are all like pretty like interesting. They're always even even if they may be a bit frustrating. And power level wise, I don't think they were none of them were like close to like oppressive enough to warrant a ban. I do understand the concern that um, <clears throat> concern that it restricts future designs. Like I get it, but like, like I think I think we have to focus on the end, end result here. You know, as long as like these like interesting cards are still being uh, printed and none of the uh, decks are oppressive enough, I didn't think that they really warranted a ban. Um, on a personal level, my two biggest finishes were with Grishobrand, uh, with which I topped four-day uh, Grand Prix, and Dredge, which one I won the start, start City with. And I personally am feeling like the personal effect of, you know, just having my two years of, like, you know, uh, playtime and, like, deck expertise, as well as my uh, paper collection, just, like, going, like, vaporizing and going down in flames. It's really frustrating. And I really do consider myself to be a modern refugee right now. Um, I, I 
people say that the cost of modern um, cost of banning goes beyond just the cards. It's just like people like people getting stranded and all that. And I'm just feeling that right now. Um, Stoneforge Mystic, I think, I, I think it is a bit too good. Um, certainly, I've never played it with it, um, so like it's to be seen. But like my personal effect is that the cost of um, including a Stoneforge package is so relatively low that any white deck con- anywhere from control uh, aggro to even mid-range to even combo uh, can and should be um, starting with Stoneforge, the Stoneforge package. And I, I, do, I, have, I do have some worries that it'll start to like, homogenize like, a lot of decks, even if it's like a creature mid-range archetype or a control archetype or even combos that do play, that can play white. They can juke the, um, uh, their host post board games by having like a cyborg stoneforge package and all that so i'm a bit worried that it, sh- it can and may um homogenize a lot of the decks in the format but i'm not that experienced with the the card itself so i'm ho- i hope i'm wrong El- elliot what was your reaction to all this uh well we were sitting in our airbnb uh like getting ready to leave for our flight and like, you know, there's a couple of people kind of getting showered, getting ready, that kind of thing. Rest of us in the living room. And one guy goes, the unbanned Stoneforge and banned looting. And then we're like, all right, yeah, yeah, good joke, good joke. Uh, and then another guy like refreshes his phone, like, no, it's real. And then like people keep filtering in from the other room, like, hey guys, what happened? Like it freak out again. And it's, it's, I don't know, it's crazy to me. I really genuinely did not expect them to do anything other than ban Hogak. And not only did we get this like big shift in modern, but like I guess standard doesn't really matter. Rampage Frostland, who cares? But like five cards changed in vintage, which I think is like unprecedented for that format. Normally they like let it stew because who cares? Um, but as for the the actual changes, uh, I'm definitely in, in between the middle. I think that Stoneforge is far from too good for modern, uh, but I think that there's like no obligation to just legalize every card that's not too unfair for modern so i kind of would have preferred to have not unbanned it but now that it is legal like i don't really care i think it's going to do a bit of warping of the fair decks around it i think decks like jun are going to be obligated to be playing more coal against commands and any deck that plays white is probably going to go try to go a little bit out of its way for stoneforge especially for the next month or so until things settle down which is the exact trend we saw with Blood Raid Elf and Jace, where those cards have kind of settled into the positions they have, but they're far from obtuse in the format. Um, it's the Faithless Looting one that I'm more agreeing with John on. I think that if going back, you know, I've been playing Modern for like five years now, uh, pretty competitively, and every single graveyard deck I've ever seen has played Faithless Looting, uh, which is an argument that it's you know, it's so ubiquitous, it's so strong that it should be banned. Uh, but on the other hand, there's not been a single modern deck, modern graveyard deck that's been powerful enough without uh, Faithless Looting to compete. The closest thing that we've ever gotten is these Thopter Sword decks, which you don't play Looting because uh, it like stretches the mana too thin and you don't necessarily want to be putting any old card in your graveyard. It's just the Thopter Sword combo you want. Um, so I think that banning looting is a mistake because it's effectively banning all of the graveyard decks at one time. And it might be the case that uh, banning every single card that's in a graveyard deck that makes it too good other than looting is too aggressive of a ban strategy for Watsi to want to implement. 
but I think in my perfect world where I have like total control over the ban list, uh, as soon as dredge is too good, you don't ban looting, you ban the best dredger or, or maybe you ban thug or something. And maybe if uh, Grizzlebrand Gorio's Vengeance is too good somehow, you ban Gorio's Vengeance or something like that. And I would rather just keep going after the specific deck card that's utilizing Faithless Looting than just looting itself. Uh, do you want to respond to all this stuff? I don't think I have enough time. Um, just disagree with all of it. And usually I agree with you fellows on about everything, but... Um, Faithless looting is not is is we're we're really thinking in a two dimensional game when it's three dimensional. Um, we're thinking about immediate application, thinking about graveyard decks not being good, and that's just not. I mean, back in my day when modern really kickstarted, and five years ago could explain, and even like Living End was a graveyard deck that was relatively competitive. Um, you can go through a list of uh, collected company style decks that use the graveyard with Eternal Witness. Um, I mean, there's there's a lot of strategies out there that obviously without faithless looting and are not tier one, but that's the point. They don't want tier one decks. And and John mentioned how diverse the decks of Dredge and Hollow One and Phoenix. Those are all the same deck, um, same exact deck, just different colors. Uh, they put in a bunch of Phoenixes, use Manamorphos and abusive free spells, put them into play, or you put in a bunch of Cantrip, Cantrip, Cycle, Cycle, put in a bunch of Hollow Ones. To call those a diverse set of decks is, I, I think it's a very incorrect analysis of it um, and, and the definition of homogenous. So I, I don't think, I, I think that we are really focusing on these poor graveyard decks and, and you guys might suffer from what I suffer from and I admit it all the time that I have a bias toward control decks and I think maybe you guys really preferred, you, you found the games of Faithless Looting, um, these graveyard decks are very interesting and the gameplay was dynamic. but players that kind of have been around for a bit and seen other formats. Maybe you guys have seen it too, and maybe an older standard or an old extended. When formats are real healthy, you can play a gruel or a, uh, a zoo deck with a bunch of burning tree emissaries or shaman, is it shaman? Emissary? Emissary. With wild McCollins and those would be competitive in the format of modern because there aren't, a, there aren't three prize amalgams and two blood gas in play on turn two. Um, and that's what you're going to see more of. And I think that the price to pay for keeping looting around and piecemealing the bands as it goes along, you, the community becomes irate at that. And they've tried that before, and it's just much more of a negative aura floating around. If you look at the overall aura of these bands, it's overwhelmingly positive for the first time. Usually it's mayhem, and people, especially like when Twin got banned, and people were like, my deck's gone. And, and John's, that, that point is true. The, the, the hurt of bannings is always the biggest negative. Um, the format health obviously is important to me, but like you are really hitting somebody for a good 500 to 1,000 bucks, depending on how much of that graveyard or how much of that deck you have built or multiple decks off the same strategy. So that part is shitty, and that comes from just poor poor play design um, from back in the day, not really planning out these cards like Hogak and uh, et cetera. So um, that, that concern is definitely real. But to, to ban one piece at a time is to get more powerful. There would be a riot, I think. Um, and I, I think that they know some sick graveyard things are coming down the pike. And you can tell from the power of Hogak that they're not done with that yet, that they built similar cards coming down the pike. 
So this band of faithless looting is, again, we're thinking two-dimensionally, but in a few sets from now, we're all going to come back and go, oh, yeah. I mean, they know that more cards that they want to sell in packs are going to come make faithless looting too good. And to the point of Stoneforge, um, I, I don't think running, I think Jundex will put in one more or two more call against commands, like go from zero to one to two or three and start mauling Stoneforge Mystic decks. If I've had in Legacy, end of turn batter spell and they command me, I just die inside, die outside, die everywhere. It's just horrible. And you think it's, it's a one for one, but not really. I mean, you spend so much of your mana and your game plan to set that up and they get you for a three mana instance pretty bad. Also, cards just like Abrupt Decay, they kill your guy, Liliana, make you sack Stoneforge. I've played so many matches of old, well, not old, one, one series when Stoneforge was legal in old extent. I played one PTQ season, but also played you know it for five years or three, three and a half, four years straight in Legacy, where I played against all these cards. And it's just not, it's not, it's, it's good, but it's not going to be enough to warp players um, to, to shift their current decks around enough to beat it. And on the final point, um, I think that Stoneforge Mystic will homogenize some, so I, I partially agree with John there. Um, but I don't think it's going to do it to the point that you're saying. I, I think that you're going to see it in control decks, you're going to see it in aggro decks. Um, you're going to see it in a lot of de- any deck with Aether Vile at the beginning. But I fear it may fall into the Jace problem, fear it fall into the Bloodbraid problem, problem, the Boogeyman of Standard, that once you get some gameplay with it, it's a lot better in our brains than it is in application. I think it's good. I think it's better than Jace, but I don't think it's going to revolutionize modern in a negative way. And I think it's going to enhance white decks because these white decks were real bad, a lot of them. And now they're going to get a lot better, which is great. So like I said, I, that's, it's a long winded response, but you know, you guys said a lot. I, I just <laughs> in staunch we disagreement on uh, your take on faithful sleeping in the stone forge. We wouldn't Buddy, still love y'all. We wouldn't expect any any less from you, Shane. Um, uh, John, John, any uh, retort to that, or uh, or Elliot? Any quick? Uh... Uh, I just want to say I, I do think Stoneforge is not too good for modern. I like I mean, fair decks have historically never been busted in modern, so I'm I'm definitely not afraid. Um, I do admit that you know over the past I don't know two or three years, I've played a lot more Faithless Looting decks than anything else, so maybe I am a bit biased about that. Um, but also, like, you know, six months down the line, if we get, like, Careful Study or something, all this, like, we definitely couldn't have Faithless Looting and Careful Study, but without Faithless Looting, maybe that's a reasonable card. They could even introduce it to the format through Standard. Like, they don't have to do a Modern Horizons 2. wouldn't be too busted there. So um, this isn't, like, the end-all... Of, of graveyard decks, but maybe maybe if you're looking to play Dredge, you have to play Burning Inquiry or something, which is less than ideal. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's like, Modern's one of those formats where if you love Modern, you're not going to put it down. And if you don't like Modern, you're only going to play it when it's your local Grand Prix and just have fun. Um, Shaheen, where did you have blue-white in terms of power level before the banning and now right after? I think it stays at tier 1.5, very close to tier 1. Um, I think it's uh, probably in the top five decks. I think it was fifth before. It might be third or fourth now. I do find it comically 
ridiculous and hilarious that people are like, even Ali, I had to pick on him on Twitter and a few others are posting memes that, oh, I like these Stone Forge decks. I'm just going to car and liberate them. I'm like, are you kidding? This Blue White's only good matchup. Blue White mushes Tron. Like, what? <laughs> like, we played this if they're both Pro Tours and, like, I was like 15 and 1 in our group against Tron. Like, some stupid number. Even on camera against Yuza, when I won a couple of Pro Tours ago, I like surgical to Tron land into an open um, Relic of Progenitus, and he just removed his Tron land response. I was already on a mulligan, and still just crushed him. Like, this doesn't even matter. <laughs> like, so I, I think it's going to, I think the, the reaction, if people like try to pivot to big mana against a four field of ruin surgical extraction deck, then I think Blue White could even move up another rank, maybe, depending on how bad people's uh, perception of the matchup is. John, do you think Blue White? Uh, me, oh, go ahead, John. Let me jump in here. At first, like, I, I have, like, a lot of respect for Blue White to the point that I've, where I've, like, said that Blue White is sil- has been silently oppressive as they've gone from uh, spell-based, stack-based control to more prison uh, type of uh, archetype. And I actually do think and have thought that Blue White's, like, secretly being one of the best uh, decks out there. And I think, like, like Stoneforge, I'm assuming they will play, but I'm not. I'm not an expert. Uh, maybe Shaheen can like opine later. But I do think this will like <clears throat> be another cherry uh, on the cake. And I do think I expect week zero and week one to be a uh, 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 meta game where blue white is going to be unquestionably t- uh, tier one. Um, I, I just want to go back to the point before where you know <clears throat> about fifth excluding and. Um, I think that like one of the things that people don't really like accept, like think about is that like as long as your deck is not like oppressive power level wise, it always has like a, a a spotting its like food chain. Like you know, Dredge does uh, police like um, blue white somewhat. Dredge does police like other decks like Burn, and you know, like these. I think I feel like these graveyard decks just got canceled altogether, and I can't think of like. Uh, graveyard deck that's like even like tier two now like Sodek the noted uh, dredge master is playing tone scour for for God's sake and you know we're still winning with it but I can't see the foreseeable future how that can be even close to tier one and tier two and the moment dredge disappears like other other decks that have been oppressed by dredge comes back and you know maybe people will think that blue white or jund is too oppressive I don't know but that's certainly a possibility right um but back to the point, I do think that um, a lot of people are pretty like outdated in terms of their perception and how Tron is a buy, uh, how Blue White is a buy for Tron and all that. And every time I tested Tron in the last two weeks, uh, two years, like I, I felt the power of the power, uh, the strength of the power creep between Field of Ruins, Sutra, Ascanta, Jace, Teferi, and all that, and Force Negation. And I just couldn't beat Blue White, uh, Blue White anymore. You know, they could either either kill me by Field of Ruining and Searchgoing. Um, even game one, or they could just like carve like one for one you into oblivion while um, they force your first thing after you play your chase and like you can uh, you can out card advantage Tron and I don't think it's a good matchup anymore. So I, I do think that blue white's going to be tier one for the uh, the next like month or so until people figure it out. <laughs> um, I do I do think like Valakut is actually very good uh, right now. Uh, I don't think there's anything fast at the moment, and I've been thinking of you know trying like a Valakut list with like. Uh, two or three like Chandra Awaken Inferno just for the blue white matchup. Maybe that's good. I don't know, but I definitely do think that blue white has been secretly tier one for a long, for the better part of the last two years, and I'm going to continue to respect it. Uh, Elliot, what, what do you think about blue white? I think it's definitely a, a solid choice going forward. Uh, I was 
afraid to play it against quite a few lot of decks I was testing uh, in the past few months. I know that I wasn't excited to play against it with mono red, and I definitely, I, I don't think I was too excited to play against it with Hogak because some of their nut draws are like kind of unbeatable for you, and and you're supposed to be the one presenting that. Um, but I wasn't I wasn't super experienced with Hogak by any means, so I might be totally off on that one. Um, going forward, I think that it does run into a bit of a risk of getting snowballed by Stoneforge Mystic, um, by your opponent's Stoneforge Mystic, but definitely from deck building side, you can play more things like Spell Snare and such uh, to prevent that. And of course, a single path just breaks that up. So if you were like the blue-white guy for the past two years, I think you should be rubbing your hands together, personally. <laughs> Shane, you already know what, what your version, how many Stoneforges you're going to be playing? You have to play four in, in Stoneblade, um, like Azorius Control. I think you can play less. And well, my first reaction with Stoneforge Missing is obviously you can play Urza uh, for the Grand Prix coming up in Indianapolis. I'm playing with Ely and Corey Ballmeister. And we're going to probably play a bunch of Urza decks with Stoneforge Mystic and start off there. I know it's kind of blasphemy, but I even wrote about it this week coming up. It's going to be, I know you guys really want blue white from me, but. I'm going to start with the busted deck first and see how Stoneforge plays in. So we, we you know, it replaces the Goblin Engineer, and you, uh, we, we're not convinced that it's better, but it, on paper it obviously looks a lot better, and they've already started testing, and they're really liking it. So um, I'm going to be in that realm, but I agree with every, what the, both gentlemen said, that um, like Elliot said, uh, it's going to be um, one of those decks that people are rubbing their hands together, excited about, and um it just got better with this piece and yeah like it, it always has been really good in a metagame that is defined it's good when you can dedicate your sideboard to certain matchups and i think now with the format without faithless looting you don't have to dedicate seven to eight slots to beat um you know these hogak decks or even the old looting decks so you're able to just play like two surgical, one rest in peace. You get to put two stony silences back in your deck to handle or another artifact decks. You get to play the full diverse um, sideboard suite to handle the five or six matchups you want to be. And I think blue white's going to be, it could, it could definitely, I can definitely see it oppressive, um, especially if you're playing a very linear strategy that falls into a sideboard plan. Um, so, so we've got some questions in chat. This one's from, uh, Puppy Puncha, who I know, who I know is Cody Crosby, uh, a friend of mine. I can understand the power creep argument, but was it even a year ago when Blue White was main decking Spreading Seas just for that matchup? Yeah, that was before Field of Ruin. Um, yeah, it was when it was good. I mean, Field of Ruin was out with Spreading Seas, and then I was a champion against both being in the deck. It was ridiculous. Like once Spreading Seas, once Field of Ruin came out, I wrote a month, two months worth of articles, like why are we all still playing spreading seeds? The matchup is not hard. <laughs> it's like, it game, and it plays very, and I hate to simplify decks and show like into a series of plays, but this is how game one goes. You, if you have one two mana counter spell in your whole, in your hand by turn two, um, you, you counter their spell and then you feel to ruin them. And it's not exactly like a hard setup to do. It's a four of and maybe a six or seven of, depending on back in the day how many um, interactive spells you played. So you have 
so many ways to, to, to handle them then. Now you have force of negation, which is even sicker. Now your, your hands can be so diverse with your counter spells and your, your interaction where you're doing the same thing. You counter them and you feel the ruin. Um, obviously, game one, if you don't draw field of ruin, then you're kind of in a world of hurt. But I've even beat Tron with just natural counter spells, tapping off our planeswalker on my turn, force of negation on their turn, untapping, Jace, brainstorm, hit field of ruin, field of ruin them. Um, to say that Tron was tough back then, you had to go before field of ruin. Um, maybe right at the inception of it when people were still not really playing or field of ruin, not really playing the matchup well enough, still kind of skimping on counter spells. But now that matchup's been a uh, straight up joke for the better part of <laughs> this month. I mean, I, like it's funny because blue white doesn't beat anything. Like I was testing like on a consistent basis. I, mean, I was 45% against everything. I was happy with that. I'll try to, to maneuver my way to wins. You have to draw the right side of your, your deck still. It was, you know, you don't have any good counter or cantrips. You, you can't really control your draw steps the way you want to against certain matchups. So, like, to say, when I tell you it was a good matchup, this was the good matchup. And the others were still tough. Even Eldrazi Tron was kind of tough back back in the day. But uh, good old-fashioned E-Tron, uh, Monogreen Tron was... Mm -mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so so we'll, we'll let you go. What, what's next for you, my friend? Uh, so we are going to, to a team Grand Prix in Indianapolis, not this weekend, next weekend. We're all gold still, but we're going to go anyway for fun because I don't miss team tournaments. Um, so team already qualified, going to go try to crush some dreams and play some modern. And uh, after that, we got uh, a couple star cities and invitational. And then I'm actually going to go to a honeymoon with uh, my wife uh, in Italy. But we're going to play in the Grand Prix in Italy there at the end of November. That's uh, if you let me do it. So I'll be in Italy playing some Legacy. <laughs> Sick. Is your first time yeah. in Italy? Yeah, and I, I've been around Europe for, but I've never been to. Uh, I, I think they maybe have like one Italian Pro Tour, and I didn't make it to that one. So I'm excited. Okay. All right. Best of luck, and and we'll see you soon. Uh, monthly uh, monthly host. <laughs> always fun. Thanks, guys. All right. That's Shaheen Sarani. Always a pleasure to have him on the show. And uh, let's get get away from, from that. Let's go before the ban. I have to say, at the Montreal MCQ, uh, if people thought people weren't coming up to these things, they were wrong. As uh, we all, the cap was 226, despite a lot of people, including some of my friends, fan of the show, Sebastien Lachance, Elliot. Uh, going to Vegas, 224 players at 226 cap. That broke our record uh, for at least a Montreal event. We've never had that this many people for, for any Open or any... It was the most attended MTG event that uh, I think, obviously outside of GPs and stuff, that we've hosted here. So um, sweet to see that and sweet to... Bosu top eight it. Fortunately, he lost, but also fortunately for me because he lost to another friend of mine, Vincent Thibault, who ended up winning with Eldrazi Tron. Um, Elliot, I think that's usually a, a good matchup for, for Hogak, I imagine. Yeah, it was one of those matchups that Hogak was really favored in, except the games where Etron was on the play and had a chalice for one and maybe had a ley line in the sideboard games. 
but in the cyborg games force of vigor is just insane because the only cards you care about are an artifact and enchantment so okay let's let's get to your tournament first elliot what did you play in vegas and, and why did, did you end up getting the deck from one of our loyal <laughs> listeners yeah so I, I played hogak um a couple weeks ago we had a show where i i decried myself a neoform player i was I had a fully stamped passport into the cabal. I was ready to play it. Uh, testing was going well. And then I kind of set a, a flora, you know, if you have the deck, hit me up. And uh, Joel Smith, a fan of the show from uh, Saskatchewan, hit me up on Twitter. I met him. I registered the deck without it in my hands and met him like 50 minutes before my first round began to get it. So a bit of a stressful moment, but came in clutch. Uh, <laughs> and then um, my GP went pretty well. Um, I had finished day one at seven and two, uh, which is not exactly where you want to be, but I'm glad I won the last round because at least I, it put me on some pressure to behave that night, uh, and, and have my head in the game for the second day. And then I lost actually a couple tough ones on day two. I lost to, uh, dredge where I just like, couldn't see a ley line at all in either of our post-board games. And my opponent like never had an answer, just always had like a dredge hand. Uh, so it was a bit unfortunate. And then I lost to Jund as well, which really doesn't feel good because I think Jund is awful. Um, but it was just like a combination of Plague Engineers and me keeping Force of Vigor hands um, that really didn't do much just because they were playing Leyline. So um, I finished at 10-4-1. I ID'd the last round. Um, it was actually, I, like, I sat down across from my opponent. I had done the math. I knew that we were drawing into either min cash or a good chance at better than min cash with no chance at hitting, like, a top 64. And they were just, like, super excited to be cashing their first GP. So a bit of a feel-good moment at the end of the day, and I got to leave the venue and get hydrated a little sooner than previous. So, so you're saying uh, your adventures, your misadventures during the later nights of at Vegas did not really negatively negatively affect your, your result. Yeah, well I mean <laughs> luckily I didn't I didn't have anything to do on the Sunday. Let's just say that. And luckily I only had to leave my Airbnb at like nine o'clock to get to the airport in time. <laughs> did you have fun in your first time staying there? Like what what did you enjoy? Oh it was absolutely insane. Uh, on our first night, because, you know, uh, most of us had day two of the GP to play, or I think a couple of people also did uh, the limited GP, which was not not initially in the plans. Um, we decided to, like, we were like, oh, we'll take it easy tonight. We'll just go to Fremont Street, uh, because none of, none of us had ever been there before. The other guys had only been to the Strip when they came. And so I was expecting, like, some, some kind of rundown bars, because everyone told me this is the old Strip. So I was expecting, you know, like some random bars and some casinos. And then we walk there and then there's like two miles of just covered like LCD display on top screens. It's like 11 at night and it's brighter than anything. And <laughs> so uh, maybe maybe I could have been a bit more tame, but that was an absolutely insane experience. <laughs> uh, and it was, it was great. Unfortunately, like I was so excited for the food and we ended up, skipping like skipping dinner two of the nights just to, to continue to be belligerent uh but i did finally get some korean barbecue on the sunday which was very nice i didn't get to go to lotus as i am so oh. 
I'll have to book my flight for next year. <laughs> yeah, I think definitely I'll, I'll, I hope to make it to that one as well. Uh, I definitely missed some some Lotus. Okay. Um, let's go to John's John's tournament. John, uh, rooting for you hard, obviously. Just rooting for both of you. But you slightly more just because of the deck choice you made. And uh, you, went on a, you went on quite a hot start. So I, I, anyway, I'll just let you take it away. It was a weekend of small margins coming to bite me. It's, I think with like a few better bounces, I could have easily been in the top eight. But it's it's hard to say because I also got lucky in certain spots. That's fine. Um, for those people that don't know, I was 11-2 and then lost twice, which is great. I was on a feature match twice, uh, which is great. All day, I was just complaining about how, oh, Neo, they're never, never going to show Neo form on camera. <laughs> And uh, I, want, I haven't played Hogak in, like, forever. I just want to farm them. And then round 11 comes when I'm 10 on 1, and I'm on, <laughs> I'm on camera. And I go on feature match against Hogak. I'm just like, it's like wow. It's like I get to farm them on camera. Like, I get to show everyone peak modern that is Neoform versus Hogak. Of course, I get punished and lose. I think I got a bit unlucky. I had Grizzle Brown out in all three games. I shouldn't lose a game like that, but I did. But, um whatever and then two rounds later i'm still 11 and 2 and i, I just need to win out to make the uh, top eight and requalify i'm up against burn uh, on a feature match i'm like okay fine it's bye and then i lose in tw uh, two games uh i just get swept so it's, it's, it's just uh all my losses are close all my losses were good matchups i genuinely genuinely believe that i had the opportunity to get hogak and i genuinely believe that i still would have played neoform I think it was a very unique spot where the bad matchups were nowhere. The deck is powerful, consistent enough. I wrote about it. I wrote so many words about it. And I just couldn't get there. I almost did. Um, I appreciate everyone's support. And uh, on Twitter, uh, throughout the days, and shout out to Chuck, uh, Chuck Pierce and his friends um, who, uh, who came up to me. And he was um, going for a 9-0. He lost uh, at, in the 8-0 bracket and kind of fizzled out at the end. But... Um, he was playing Neoform as well. His two friends were playing Neoform as well. He just actually just um, uh, tweeted at me. He said that his Neo brand Cabal went 13 and, uh, uh, 31 and 14 between three players. And I went 11 and 4. So uh, collectively, the, the six Neoform players in day two, I think, got like 70% win rate. So I, I think that was really a good choice for the weekend. I really wish that a few bounces went my way so I could have gone to the top eight and I could just, could have just clean up Pogak and won the Grand Prix, but it is what it is. But it was a good weekend. <laughs> can't, can't watch that one. Uh, can't uh, listen to that one out smiling. Um, John, did you mention the, the, the Neo form, the, the friendly fire on, on day two? Was it, was it that guy? I, did I miss yes. it? Yes. So let me, let me tell you, this, this, like, this was the pinnacle of uh, modern. We're both 10 and 2. We're at table 6, and it's a Neo form mirror. Game one, he turn one combos me, but fizzles and dies because he, has, he can't pay for his pack. Game two, I, I turn one combo him, but I fizzle, and he beats me. This is, this is modern at its peak. It was beautiful. It was art. Modern, this is this Neoform mirror, round, uh, round 12, high stakes, both players still in running for top eight. It was beautiful. It was how modern was supposed to be played. I'm trying, I'm trying to find the tweet I made also about uh, Matt Stein basically um, 
tweeted how he was playing the MCQ and he had like a five turn match where he just, you know, I'm sure that's pretty regular for you as well to finish around with probably over 40 minutes left, left on the clock. Uh, actually, uh, not so much because the actual logistics of comboing in terms of like drawing the seven cards and uh, counting your library size and just um, just uh, dividing your hand into useful cards and not, it, it takes a bit of time, but definitely fast. And uh, I actually got a lot of people that came up to me and say, hey, you know, you're final nub. I really like your article, even if they weren't playing. So that was really cool. Shout out to people who came up and uh, said hi to me. I really appreciated it. So where, where do you move from now, Mr. Refugee? Um, now with blue white to, to some people, like I think Spencer, who's, uh, who was watching us on, on Facebook commented, like how he's always felt, you know, blue white was tier one. I think a lot of our listeners felt that way. And now it's taking, it's got an extra tool. Like what, what's, what's a guy to do? What's a guy like you to do? So I, I dropped some tr truth bombs in Twitch chat, but let me do it again. Blue white has been on the rise quietly and have, have like developed into a silent like prison assassin uh, in the last two years for a, for a few reasons. One, the power creep has been insane. Before they were had to like try to beat people like Gideon Jura and Elspeth and like <laughs> those cars in this economy, no way, no fucking way. Anyways, they've, got, they've gotten Field of Ruin, Dovin's Veto, Force of Negation, Teferi, Jace. These are powerful, powerful cards. And secondly, there, there are few bad matchups were one to big mana because they didn't have inevitability and they don't have land destruction, and two spell based combos which can choke their uh, expensive uh, counter spells and mana. And those holes have both been plugged. Field of Ruin and Jason Mind Sculptor means you can like fill them once and then like out, like one for one out grind them easy. And against like spell based combo which has had traditionally good matchups against, uh, against blue white, like Storm was like an 80 20 favorite against blue white. Visual Brand, Ad Nauseam, same things. Some of them play Pack Negation, and Dovin's Veto says LOL. And Storm, uh, like all those decks are hurt by like Teferi, which negates Pack Negations and like Giga Drow setups, as well as like Narset and Force Negation. So they've gotten so many, so many freaking good cards. And, I, I don't think blue-white mages can uh, kind of complain anymore. I think blue-white legitimately is good, and I, I, they re legitimately have my respect. And if I was a better magic player, I would play, try to play blue-white. But as it is now, everyone on their mom's playing uh, Stoneforge Mystic uh, decks. And I do have a modern PTQ in three weeks, and I think I'm going to start at uh, big mana. I'm big mana that can beat blue-white, and I think that's Valakut. I don't think anyone's pressuring me right now. I don't think there are any uh, degenerate like graveyard combo decks that can like pressure you like Hogak or Grishabrand did that would terrorize Valakut. And I think the the more the format goes fair, like Goblins or Soul Herder or whatever, or these like Stoneforge Mystic decks, the more the better it is for like a big mana deck to just, like prey on them. And Valakut can beat other big mana decks like Tron, who they're favored against. And Blue White, if I if I have more like Chandra Awakened Inferno, I can ramp into her, like, turn four or turn five. I think you, um, Valka might be in a very good spot. So that's where I'll Elliot, Elliot, what about you? Do you care about modern moving forward right now? What's what's on the horizon in, in the land of Elliot? Uh, well, I do have a PTQ at the end of the month that's modern. And uh, Grand Prix Montreal is the first weekend of October, which uh, has the new structure that features five PTQs. And it's possible there's a PTQ every single day that's modern. Uh, so 
you know, depending on how I feel in the week leading up to that, I'm, I might play Modern there as well. Um, my next event is Legacy, though, so I, I don't know how much I'll invest in Modern in the next couple of weeks, but I did just bird uh, Andy playing some some matches or some leagues on Moto with Blue-Red Living End, and it, it honestly looked pretty incredible. I think he went 8-2 and two, losing to Humans and forget the second one, so... Uh, humans is like definitely one of your near zero percent matchups because meddling mage is so hard to beat. Um, but I think the deck has some serious legs. I think it's like really good against the fair decks, really good against the creature decks that people are playing to support Stoneforge Mystic, uh, because the first living end is just Wrath of God on top of putting 20 power play. Uh, and actually, it's kind of weird. I think it's Wind something Aven. John knows the name because he's been playing limited. Windcaller. Windcaller Aven is just another one-mana cycler that the deck gains with flying, which I think is super important. Uh, so it can play, I think it plays seven of those now. And it, it actually came up and was not irrelevant that he, we killed a phantasmal image off of cycling a Windcaller Aven, which is pretty cool. Uh, so I think that if I do play Modern in the next couple of weeks, it, it might be with that. Just see where that leads. Let me, let me interject here. Um, for all my problems with the armbands, I think the Magic community, Twitter, Reddit, Hivemind, they are as happy and vibrant and excited as I've ever seen them. And for that, I'm very happy for them. Even though I'm displaced and even though I think I'm a refugee right now, I'm happy that um, the, the format sounds or looks uh, liberated, with, even though, I don't know, that's to be seen. And I'm happy for people that they're happy and they can start brewing these new cards because War and Modern Horizons have brought a lot of exciting build arounds, and I'm happy to see where it goes, even though it sucks for me. <laughs> um, we're gonna wrap it up with, with this segment. It's cool that the, the Facebook stream is gonna be working. No drop frames, we're on Twitch, we're on Facebook, on my page, we're on twitch.com slash Magic. Uh, next week, we're probably gonna try to make it so that I'm gonna put it on face-to-face -face games up either Facebook page or the First Strike page, just because Restream.io requires you to pay to, to, to stream, to restream it to a Facebook page. So I didn't want to pay unless we, we tested this to make sure it works. Because last time we, we started this, it was a disaster and we had to bail right away. Um, Elliot, I consider you, uh, uh, especially on our discussion against Derek when it comes to card advantage, someone that, that's more math and stat oriented. And I think Whereas it does apply to a lot of, uh, this is the, the last topic of, of the show, apply to a lot of people we might know or see at FNM when we say someone constantly plays bad decks, that they would do a lot better if they played a real deck or one of the tier one decks. And, but, but then in some cases, if that's not true, uh, the person uh, in question, whether they, they have more fun playing a specific deck whereas put a lot of time in a specific archetype uh, would do better. Uh, not playing, going off the beaten road, or they, they might have stumbled upon something. As Alex has said, when he uh, landed on Miracles or other funky decks that, that he has had to play on his road to success. So, Elliot, I'm going to put you on the spot here in front of John. Like, what's your take on that? Should he have played a real deck? Go. Oh, I was hoping there was more so I could think a bit. Um, in terms of the random person at your local FNM, I think the important takeaway for sure is that everybody gets something different out of Magic. Uh, not everybody wants to go to FNM and 
you know, it's, it's a failure if they don't three, one and win their pack or something. Some people just want to show up for the sake of magic. Uh, I, I know I've joked about it a lot, but it's genuinely true. I do enjoy the gathering a lot. And there's people who just go to F and M so that they can be with 20 like-minded people and have some fun. Um, so in terms of John, it's a little trickier because obviously he's going to events with the, the idea that he wants to win. Um, there is like a big deal of player preference in decks as well. I know that when I was new to magic, I played almost exclusively mid-range decks because that's what I was immediately comfortable with the most. And it took a, a quite a bit of time for me to start to transition into more combo and, and unfair decks as well as learn some control decks. And I, you know, I definitely got bailed out by the fact that like Abzan Company was the perfect bridge between combo and mid-range. So that's how I kind of like ended up picking up the skills that I that I applied when I can pick up a deck now. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily true that 100% of the room's best shot at winning Grand Prix Las Vegas was through playing Hogak. Uh, there's definitely people who have edges with their decks and um, if everyone was playing Hogak, you know, <laughs> you you lose that edge immediately. There is also some, you know, I, I forget what the term is, but like, maybe you know because you were into poker, when you're like near a, a pay bubble or something and your your play style changes. What Would you know the word for that? They call it like ICM considerations, but I don't know the... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So there are some considerations for if we know going into a tournament that 35% of the meta is Hogak. There's considerations for playing a deck, you know, because 35% is a good chunk, but it's also not, you know, you're not going to play it every single round. So there's both considerations for playing a deck like Neo, Neo Brand that if you play against uh, Hogak seven times in this tournament, which isn't the most unreasonable thing, that you're going to be 7-0 no matter what. And there's also considerations for uh, playing a deck that can't beat Hogak because at the end of the day is, is only 35% of the, me the, the metagame. I, I don't know about John. I only played Hogak twice and it was rounds three and four. I, so, ho he's giving me the number one. So we, we saw the numbers. It was like 20%, 20 something percent of day two. I played it zero times day two. John played it zero to one times day two. So, you know, did John have fairly middling result with his anti-Hogak deck? Yeah, but, you know, if he played Hogak twice twice more instead of some of the other decks, maybe it's not so middling, maybe he has a top eight. Um, from here, you know, if I'm John's mental coach and I'm trying to get him in the best position for his three-week-away PTQ, uh, do, I, do I guide him towards, like, Twiddlestorm or some other new degenerate uh combo deck or do i say like hey man i'm gonna put stone Mystic in your hands and i'm gonna put noble iron in your hands and you're gonna learn something new here uh i, I really don't know um it's really up to him <laughs> um i do i do think john doesn't give himself enough credit when he's when he thinks he's too crappy or or, or too bad to play blue, blue white control um Man, only, only I was, I was afraid because we talked about it last episode where we mentioned why we might not see people play Hogak in MCQ. It's hard to get a hold of deck. People don't want to switch it, don't want to buy it uh, because of the incoming ban and, and, and actually happened. And I was actually worried. I don't know if I mentioned it on the show, but I personally felt worried because I wanted John to face more 
uh, good matchups, and I feared that it wasn't going to be as high as it would be for, for him. And, and that him telling me that he only played it once just makes me like shake my head. Like I wish, wish more people could afford or, or was bring Hogak to the table, which the ban date was like, you know, further out. But uh, um, what? Go ahead, John. Okay. Uh, one thing here, KYT, how many freaking people go to a GP and O2 drop their MCQ, limited MCQ? Not many. Like, I'm very realistic with my skills, man. Like, I'm, very, I'm a very good player in terms of, like, combo and maybe aggro, but my fundamentals are ragged. I, on Sunday, I went to the M20 field, uh, built my pool, which I think was medium, and immediately, like, O4, O2 dropped. And I didn't feel, I, I think I deserved it. I, I feel like my opponents like ran circles around me. I didn't know what to, what to prioritize. I, I, I didn't really care to do like combat math or, you know, looking ahead for a few turns and like resource planning and all that. So uh, someday I'll, get, I'll be better, but uh, I, I'm not going to pretend and say I'm, I'm like a good player because I don't think I am. I'm just, I'm just going to what I, what I can and what I want to. What, you said what? You went O2 at your first one, MCQ or PT? The sealed MCQ, GP Las Vegas. Like, oh, okay. I assure you, no matter how bad your pool is, no, no truly good player is going to go all to drop. I mean, I don't think I agree with that. <laughs> I don't think Elliot agrees with that. <laughs> yeah, definitely no. <laughs> One tournament. No, you're too hard on yourself. We'll yeah, if, if an O2 drop means I'm not a good player, woof. <laughs> <laughs> like in a, in a sealed, in a sealed PTQ where the first two rounds are like really soft. I don't know, man. Like, but ma like maybe, it, maybe your opponents were saying the same thing. Like I played against the soft opponents the first two rounds. You know, like <laughs> it's it's hard to know sometimes how good your opponents are. I suppose so. Yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> definitely. I'm playing against Final Nub in round one of a limited MCQ. I'm screwed. Um, <laughs> so there's that. Um, now you're, you're making me curious about the actual math, Elliot. At some point when we play tournaments, there are tournaments where we're like, okay, the metagame is so flat, it doesn't even matter that much. It's not going to shift either way. But I think I'm going to ask like Sean Gifford. I'm, I'm curious just like these poker solvers that solve the ending of a tournament if you adjust and say it's probably been done before like by frank carson or whatever but if you you know you have a good matchup and it's 35 percent of the field and let's just assume the rest of the matchups like the the rest of the field is closer to 50 or have some bad matchups um what's the ev of, of playing neoform i'd be i'd actually be curious in the math in the math as well uh i think the problem is that it's it's you're going to be working with way too many assumptions because it's impossible to know going in the exact proportion of decks that people play, especially uh, at a Grand Prix that's like 2,000 players. Um, so you can get like a rough idea. Sure, we know going in, we've, we just had three GPs before or two GPs in the SCG. We know how it's going to be 25% or whatever. Um, but then the other issue is that it's so impossible to get a reasonably sized data sa uh, set to get the percentages of win rates. Uh, you know, back in the day when we had, I know it, it popped up on Goldfish and uh, Sean Gifford's uh, blog as well, when you used to be able to mine all of the Moto data right. and you'd be able to see like the specific matchup by match win rates per deck, you know, maybe then you could kind of get an idea. But 
like right now the best you can do is you know i know hogak's going to be between 20 and 30 percent and i know my win rate against hogak's between 54 and 63 percent so it's i think it's like too loose to get an actual idea that's good but if you, but if you want to spitball and say you know i'll take my chances sure i think i think the spitball is worth it just because what let's say what john's doing is sort of spitballing without like simming it, right? Just like I'm bringing Neoform because Hogak's public enemy number one. I expect an edge because I expect to face it often enough. And I wonder if, if like, you know, I just plug in a few numbers, 25%, 35%, maybe it'll, it'll give me like, like if it's really close, then it's not going to give me any answer because then it's like, okay, it could go either way. But if, if somehow the, the sim shows me like it's really slanted towards one way, then then i know but but you're right you're right there's way too many variables and then there's a lot of bad matchups that are impossible to know how the exact percent they're going to show up so uh it would be a tough task but again when you're bringing something like this you're, you're sort of doing it in your head anyways in a way you're assuming a lot of things and, and you're like okay like in montreal sometimes i'd be like there's got to be a lot of model red so i should bring this stack so i'm just sort of doing behind the scenes math so maybe if i put it together I'll have a more informed choice, or or maybe not. Maybe it's just garbage. There's a, just like a lot more, a lot of like incomplete information, uh, information assumptions that you have to make for these types of uh, uh, analysis, right? So what I like to do is like Andrew Ellen Bogan once said, like modern is about or magic is about making the best inferences out of limited information. So like a lot of the thing uh, pre-tournament prep I do is qualitative, not quantitative. Um, but we do know conceptually, and Karsten has said this, but um, I, I think uh, a deck with higher variance, i.e. higher, uh, uh, more polar matchup spread is a uh, way bigger favorite than against like, uh, than like with like Jun, for example, which has a much narrower uh, uh, matchup spread band. So, but there's a lot of randomness, right? Like you, so for those who play DFS, like um, Car, for example, like there's a lot of value in fading fading the uh, fading the most popular player. And if the most popular player is like 30, 35%, there's value in like zagging when everyone's zigging. And the concept concept is not 100% uh, naturally transferable, but um, I do think of that sort of stuff as well when I do think about um, deck selection in uh, Magic as well. So just uh, some food for thought. John, can you repeat that concept? What did he say? He said like something with higher variance. You're paraphrasing him, so I, I would love to so, see. Yes. So let, let's think of like a deck in two terms. One is EV or win percentage, and two is like the variance. Right. So uh, a deck can be a 51% win rate deck, and there's no variance. So against literally every deck in a format, it's 51% okay, so uh, to win. So we're comparing, let's say, Neoform versus Jun, right? Let's say, let's just... Those are very good representations, okay? Let's say Jund is, like, pretty close against most of the field. Okay. So, therefore, in a given matchup, you can be, like, anywhere from 45% uh, win uh, a favorite to 55%. Okay. Let's say Neoform, for example. Neoform against Tron, Neoform against Burn is, like, a 70-80%, uh, like, a lopsided matchup, okay? Whereas, like, uh, Neoform versus Blue-White, for example, might be, like, a 30-70 matchup. What, what Frank is positing is that, you know, like, because there's so much variance in matchups to begin with here, the, the higher variance or the more polar your matchup spread is, i.e. the more 2080s and 8020s that you have, the more likely it is for you to spike a tournament, i.e. get 13 wins out of 15, uh, out of 15 rounds. That's what, that's what he means. 
because at some point you're going to play it. I guess the, the argument is at some point you're going to play a tournament where all your 70s or 80s line up, I guess. That's that's like the value in that. Exactly. Exactly. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. And and it does have a flip side as well, where if your 80-20 deck has 20 80s, then you might play a tournament where you totally bomb it. <laughs> but, you know, you're less likely less likely to get like an 11-4 finish, let's say, you know, even though John got one, like Jund is, you know, like the archetypical 11-4 deck in the hands of a good player. Whereas Neoform, you know, if you run it a hundred times, it's going to be a lot more top eights and a lot more missed day twos. This is, uh, this is really interesting. This is a, a topic I was telling John I wanted to cover with Alex because one of the biggest critics, <laughs> biggest, one of the more known critics to, to John's uh, selection. He means no harm. He loves John, he respects his play skills. Uh, D. Rude, David Rude, uh, Pro Tour player, Pro Tour winner, uh, former Pro Tour winner. And I think it, it's, he's, it's, he's not the only one who thinks that. It's been, it's been since I've been playing, some people just don't like decks that have a reasonable, what would they feel reasonable to high f fail rate. And um, for me, some of that is because you feel like you want to be as a, if you feel you're a good player you definitely don't want that because you feel like you want to make the most out of games that can be played so for example jund let's say even though it might be 45 55 if you're a better player and the game actually plays out where there's meaningful decisions on both sides you're going to eke out that extra percentage so in your hands against a weaker opponent it no longer becomes 45 55 it could become 50 60 in a lot of matchups um, but I mean, what Frank Carlson just said about like winning a tournament and, and, and Divu just saying that Neil Brand is a bad choice because you're off. He thinks it's going to end up finishing 11-4 a lot of the times because the deck's going to fail X amount of the time. And, and to that, you say what, uh, Elliot? Uh, it, that kind of goes back a bit to like the player preference as well. Um, I think. There is a lot of value in having agency in Magic, um, like if not for anything else, your like mental health, because uh, the apps one of the absolute worst things in Magic is uh, like sitting down for a match and having just no chance to win. It's you know part of, part of the reason I I've kind of wanted something from Neobrand to get banned, and, and I think John agrees with me is like the fact that it can turn one win. You know the fact that you could potentially sit down in a match and through like no fault of your own you'll you'll play 100 perfectly but you die without getting a turn um so playing a deck that is more likely to give you agency uh from the flip side where it's your own deck playing out its game plan and the way it was designed to uh does have something to do with like how you feel about the game so, you know, if you are a Jund player and you play against a combo deck, let's say it's not Neoform, so you're getting a turn, and, you know, you get to play your Thoughtseize, and then the second turn you maybe play your Tarmogoyf, and, you know, you play another piece of interaction, and you lose anyway. But at least you interacted. You had fun. You executed your game plan. Whereas if, you, if you're on the Neo brand side of things, where you keep, like, a turn two hand and get Thoughtseized, and then you die and you never combo, you know, that's you hitting your fail rate, but if you're okay with that, then by all means. And it's not necessarily um, always like a play skill thing, um, because there are, you know, there's a big history of of the best players in the world playing decks with high fail rates. Uh, it just has to has to go 
with where you've like weighed the risk in the tournament. John, I'm, I'm going to let you respond. Uh, the last thing I wanted to say was um, it, there could be an argument where like John has always been, oh, I'm people pick up John because it's like the 50, the 45%, 55% deck. Uh, and maybe people are assuming that too, too strong for, for modern because there's some decks, there's some matchup, even as John, where it like you're not really playing any magic against certain matchups. Tron. Um, <laughs> Tron or, 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 you know, there is a fail rate against yeah, the combo decks if you don't draw any of, of your uh, thought seizes, any of your discard spells. So at that point, you know, you maybe you mulligan to, into them and still don't get there and you lose to their turn two, turn three combo. Um, but, but go ahead, John. I, I'm really happy you, you brought up this article before uh, I dived more into this uh, topic of uh, choosing a deck. So let me address like three points here. One, um, I think what David, uh, I disagree with what David was saying uh, with, with regards to, you know, like if you if you play such an inconsistent uh, deck, you're destined for 11, 4, and 10, 5. So mathematically, I don't believe that's true, assuming that the expected value or the win rate, the mean win rate is the same, like, like given all else equal. If you have a higher variance, deck or a higher uh, matchup spread, then you're more likely, your, your range of outcomes actually becomes wider, not narrower. So by, by that count, if I'm 50, I'm a 55% uh, win rate Neobrand player, and I'm also 55% Jun uh, player, then you're more li I'm more likely to spike an event. And I retweeted, uh, I tweeted the uh, Toby Hinky, not Frank Carson article just now. So for listeners who wants to have a look, you can have a look there. Um, so that's number one. Okay, uh, number two. So, so that's Toby Hinky. Okay, not Frank. Yes, Toby Hinky. Okay, thank you. Yes. Yeah. So number two, like I think agency is a bit overrated. Um, I think that I definitely get the sentiment that you know if you're a better player, you want to outplay your opponent, and uh, you want to you want to therefore have a deck that can give you an opportunity to uh, outplay your opponent. I agree that that is a thing. However, it's uh, one factor in a bigger picture, and I think agency. Deck selection is also agency, as well as hand selection, which is also an agency. It's just a different type of area of agency that people like to feel they have control of. And I don't, I'm fine with that. You know, if people want to feel like they're in control when they make their discard or counterspell decisions, I'm fine with that. Everyone's different. But I don't think it's wise to really ignore deck selection as well as metagame, uh, metagame -like evaluation that goes into the deck selection and hand selection which are three of the most important things the, um, for Neoform, like that's agency too. It's just a different form. And some people just don't want to be at the mercy of um, the draw seven or the draw six or what the hand mulligan, and that's fine. But I think it's a bit disingenuous to like, ignore that as a aspect of agency as well. I think it's also important to note that something that's like maybe less obvious uh, to people who like haven't taken uh, statistics courses and things like that, um, is that if a deck has a 30% fail rate, that doesn't mean that it's going to fail in 30% of its matches in a 15-round tournament. It means that when you play a million matches, it's going to it's going to fail around 300,000 of them. So <laughs> when you when you play a Grand Prix, you could fail zero matches. It's that's a totally reasonable outcome. And it, that outcome is, you know, I don't want to do the math, but it's, it's going to happen like 20% of the time where you never fail. 
and that's like you know when you're playing if, if that's how the map pans out that's pretty insane because you can enter five grand prix and you're going to win one of them that's something to consider go ahead john and it brings up a good point let me just add one more point here um the fail rate argument i think it doesn't look at the whole picture and this is why neoform i thought is a great great uh, uh choice last weekend it's not about your deck's 20th percentile uh case losing against other people's 20th percentile case neoform's 20th percentile case is like you die to goldfish like you die to like a turn one goblin guide and die horribly in 10 turns right whereas a burn deck or a john deck's like 20th percentile um ca uh, case can at least like beat some hands but you feel helpless as in your fell case as neoform but that's not why that's not the appeal of the deck the appeal of the deck is the other like i'm just making up numbers but your 50th average percentile uh, case easily beats like hogak's 70th percentile case or put more put more simply your average hand beats a uh, good hand from uh, Hogak and or a great hand from Tron. That's like what that's like a big big part of why you want to play Neoform. Your distribution of um, uh, success and fail cases match up well versus the uh, formats. Put another way, your best your best or your good great and best hands beats anyone else's great to uh, best hands. That's why you want to be playing Neoform. There are fail cases for sure, but if you have your good, great, and excellent uh, cases, like enough of the times, so it doesn't freaking matter, right? Mm. Good stuff, guys. Really good stuff. I think this is uh, this is opening my eyes a bit because I I, I probably read the Toby Hinky article before, but I missed it. All this content, Elliot, you, you mentioned that that example, and it reminds me of even if you go gambling with Magic players and and you're at the roulette table, you will have even magic players that you respect even if they see it land on red five times they're they're going to think black and they're going to bet quite heavily on black i, I don't but well, that's been my experience i don't know about you guys but uh even if i surround myself with with intellectuals uh you know there, there's definitely superstition or, or people will fall uh on, like fall for these mathematical fallacies yeah, and I just want to add one thing, which is, again, for the people who maybe haven't taken statistics at a higher level in school, uh, which is, it was like, it's always one of the first assignments that I got in a statistics course. I don't know why every single one decided to touch on this. I think even in high school, I saw this, where it's, you have two dice rolling against each other, and you have to determine which die is favored. So you let's say that Jund is a a one, two, three, four, five, six sided die, a standard regular die. And, you know, uh, what John is looking for when he plays his decks, his deck selection, is a, de a die that's closer to a, uh, three sides are sixes and three sides are zeros. And so you are, you, when you roll six, you can beat everyone, and that's going to happen half the time, no matter what they roll. But half the time, you're going to roll zero and you'll automatically lose. So um, that's like a, a really cool concept for, for thinking about your fail rates, where you know, maybe, maybe it, the, uh, the new brand X is more like as a seven, two sixes, and a four and a couple zeros or something like that. So that gives you an idea of sort of the range of the power level of your hands and how they line up against the range of the power levels of your opponents. And obviously, you know, there's not just six possible hands in Magic, six possible outcomes, so it gets a lot more complicated than that. But um, 
that that does like I think paint a better picture of you know my good hands beat everyone else's good hands, but my bad hands lose to everyone's bad hands. I think that's a way more digestible and uh, more uh, illustrative example. Um, Elliot, Elliot got it. Wait, but John, do you, do you have friends like that? Like, like I mentioned, that still like <laughs> will bet, like be super. Um, not, I guess, results oriented. Not really. I guess will bet on black if they see red like five times. It's like human nature, well, though. I can't even fault myself for doing that. Like, if I have to make a choice, I'm like, okay, I'll just, I'll just put on black, man. Well, well, of course, and you know, a lot of my friends and coworkers think I'm a degenerate because I play like poker and like bet on other things. But I'm actually very risk averse, and I don't play blackjack or pygal or like other stuff like that because it's like maybe. So I, I, I'm actually a pretty big buzzkill in that regard, where like 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 emotions don't really sway me, and you know, it's not like you know I have a hot run with black or red or whatever. If that's what you're asking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm a lot of good stuff. But I have to say, like. You brought good points that I didn't think about, like agency and in different aspects of the game, not just um, when the game starts, but before that, there's, there's some selection as well. And um, my point is, is that at one point, there were, there were a lot more decisions that mattered. And the way I think Hayne and I are saying that now the way the game's going, the way it's being printed and cards are created are, are too powerful to the point where they matter less. Some games, like when when I was rolling people with bat manipulation, it was just like I just got Nissa first, and and that's it. There wasn't that much skill involved after that. And um, at one point, I do feel like it mattered when I uh, saw like Alex's crazy run of I don't know how many, like winning a GP is hard, as as you know, John. And he's won multiple in one year where he was piloting Sphinx's Revelation, Blue White, when it was probably at the time consensus most skilled deck in standard and I could see where that deck which wasn't that like super dominant how he could have exercised his skill over a long set of decisions to be able to to get there to be able to have a deck that's not a 730 deck but consistently win GPs or top eight them so I think we're in a different era now but um, which has me thinking that I should be, if I play the next modern MCQ, going shifting towards a more swingy uh, type of deck. And, and yeah, that's, that's a lot to think about. And I hope for our listeners uh, gain something uh, from this. Peace out. Has this affected your deck choice for your next tournament? Let us know uh, in the chat and, and people, let, let us know on Twitter. Um, and with that, what's next for you, John? Let's wrap this up. You know, like, as much as like half my collection, paper collection is like, like Gresham Brand and Dredge, so like it's it's all evaporated. So, but it does give me um, it does give me an opportunity to kind of explore uh, modern a bit, which is cool. And I do have an MCQ in three weeks, so you know I'm just gonna be a, a filthy casual and start playing like interesting decks that was being held back by Hogak. And some of that include like goblins, which I think can like outgrind the hell out of blue white and has some really cool like uh, uh, gameplay and as well as goldfish opportunities. Uh, Bring to Light Snake Shift, which was, I think was good be before all of us in the BTL Cabal kind of collectively uh, agreed that Hogak, we just can't be Hogak. And, you know, maybe maybe we'll see. Like, I think Valka would be what I would be on with the uh, Chandra Awake, Awoken Inferno if I were to play a serious game tomorrow, but be, I don't have that. So I'm just going to take it easy and uh, explore modern a bit, like a Timmy.
as Elliot, what he's up to already. So support the show, go to patreon.com slash first strike. Thanks for watching on Facebook. Thanks for watching on Twitch. And thanks for subscribing to us on all the podcast platforms. And thanks to saying hi. People who came up to John and mentioned either his article on magic.facepacegames.com or their first strike listener or anyone that comes up to me and Elliot at our different events. Really appreciate it. And with that, extra shout outs to P Sounds once again. We love you. You've never been uh, declined to be on the show. It's just that I'm waiting for your first big finish in a long time. So stop playing bad decks. Listen to this advice and pick a high variance deck. And good luck. Love you. Ha, 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 ha.